If you have your Bible today, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 7, and we will begin in verse 1. Luke chapter 7 and verse 1, and we are continuing our series today in the Gospel according to Luke. And you remember that um, two weeks ago we took a pause in this study. It was, of course, Palm Sunday, and then last week was Resurrection Sunday. And um, at that point, we had finished up Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. Now, you remember that it's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, so much so that many people think that it's the same sermon. Um, others, and I'm falling to this camp, believe that it's probably a separate teaching. But in it, you remember, Jesus gave directions for discipleship. And so all throughout the, the Sermon on the Plain, you have things like um, loving your neighbor as yourself. And uh, we have the Beatitudes where Jesus pronounces blessings on those who follow the way of the kingdom, who live according to what he has laid out and, and woes to those who don't. We have, um, like I said, treating others the way we want to be treated, uh, a caution that's, that we should exercise when, in the standard that we use when we interact with others, uh, being blind eye surgeons. I mean, he, he, he talks about a number of things, and he finishes up by talking about the wise and the foolish builder and how wise it is to build our lives on the things that he says. And you remember, it's not enough just to hear what he says and to read those things, but we actually need to be doers of the word as well. Not just hearers, but doers as well. So today marks a shift in, in the gospel according to Luke. And in our text today, we're transitioning out of this passage where he has had this extended block of teaching, and we're going to be looking at, at some more interaction that he starts to have with other people with miracles and things like that. But also, it, it marks a shift because up until this point, Jesus has focused his efforts and his ministry on the Jews. Today, we have a shift because he's going to perform a miracle for a Gentile. And, and really, that's, that's kind of a small picture of his method of ministry. Remember, he, he came first to the Jews, but not only for the Jews, he also came for non-Jews as well, for the Gentiles. And so, so that is really kind of a, a small picture of what he's doing. Now, we've set the stage kind of just a, a little bit. So what I'd like us to do is, if, you've, if you're able and you found Luke 7, to stand with me in honor of God's Word. And we'll pick up in verse 1. And read down to verse 10. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says, When he, Jesus, had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come, asking, asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, he is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to, to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> now if you look back at verse 1, it says that Jesus completed his discourse. Now, this discourse that it talks about, of course, is the Sermon on the Plain that we just got through mentioning a moment ago. And it says then that he went to Capernaum. He went to Capernaum. Now, uh, Capernaum was a very important city in the life of Jesus. 
Most likely, though, if I were to ask you about the cities that were important in Jesus' life, that would not be one of them that you would mention. You'd probably say, well, Bethlehem was important in his life because that's where he was born. You'd probably say Nazareth was an important city in Jesus' life because that's where he was raised. You might say Jerusalem was an important city in his life because that's where the temple was. He was crucified crucified outside Jerusalem and so forth. But most likely you would not say Capernaum was an important city in his life. But the Bible says that that was where he settled when he began his ministry. Now Capernaum is not mentioned in the Old Testament, but its name means city of Nahum. And so it's possible, we don't know for sure, but it's possible that the prophet Nahum came from this city. Now at this point, Jesus had done all kinds of miracles there. Matthew chapter 4 records a whole bunch of things that he'd done. He had, the Bible says there that he, had, uh, that he had taught in their synagogues. He'd healed paralytics. He had uh, people that had all kinds of diseases and sicknesses, epilepsy, just a, a whole slew of things. They came to Jesus and he healed them. You remember the, the paralytic that was lowered down through the roof by the four friends? You remember that? That happened in Capernaum. That happened in Luke chapter 6. And so, so Jesus had... had had done amazing things there. They had been given a lot of light. And so later, that's why Jesus condemned Capernaum, because even though they'd had much light, many of them still did not believe. So this was his place. The Bible says it was his city. And we don't know exactly how big it was. But evidently, it, had, it, it, was, some, uh, it, it was of some size, because it was big enough to be called not a village or, or a town, but, but a city. It was near the sea, and, and it's where Peter and Andrew lived. And that's where Jesus called them from. It's where Matthew, remember, there was a, a, a booth set up, and, he, and there was a man there named Levi or Matthew that was collecting taxes. That happened in Capernaum. Jesus called Matthew from Capernaum. So this was an important place in his life. There was a synagogue there. So evidently there were several Jews that lived in that area, that lived in that town. And so I, I tell you all this because, because Jesus goes back to that place where he'd already done and had already worked miracles. He had taught, he'd done all these things. And so the Bible then says that there was something else that was there. If you look in verse 2, it says that there was a certain centurion there. Quite likely, he was stationed there. There's probably a barracks or, or some kind of an outpost in Capernaum. Now, when we read the New Testament, especially the Gospels, we read about several people called centurions. What in the world is a centurion? Well, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you just a, a, a piece of history that will help you not only understand what centurions are, but also other portions of Scripture. A centurion was a Roman military officer. They were the primary military officers in the Roman army. As you can probably guess from their title, what is a hundred years? What's that called? A century. And so you can probably guess with the title centurion how many people they were over. There were over about 100 people. It may be as low as 50 or 80. Uh, could be as high as 100, depending on how strong the army was and if they'd been in battles, people die, so on and so forth. But I tell you all this to, so you can get a picture. So the Roman army was made up into legions. Now we know about legion because Jesus interacted with a demoniac. You remember what he, what he said, what is your name? And the, the demon-possessed man, the demon spoke through him, uh, through the man, and said, Legion, Why? For we are many. Now we don't know that, that he had 6,000 demons in him, but a Roman legion had 6,000 soldiers, give or take. Each legion was divided up into 10 cohorts. Now, I, I tell you this because if you're in the education field, a co- cohort to you is not the same thing as a cohort in the Roman army. Because a cohort in the Roman army was a group of 600 soldiers. Now I mentioned this because 
we read about cohorts elsewhere in the scriptures. For instance, in, um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas showed up with soldiers. You remember this? Now, the, we, when we think of it, and maybe you've seen this on, in movies or whatever where it tries to depict the, the events of that time, we think of maybe a, a dozen soldiers showed up, maybe a couple dozen soldiers show up. But John chapter 18 says that the whole Roman cohort showed up to arrest Jesus. So get this in your mind. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, there were at least 600 people there. And that's just Roman soldiers. That's not the religious leaders and things like that. And in um, Jesus, he, he'd been taken into Pilate and all those things. Remember, he was taken into the Praetorium. And they took him in and began to mock him. And, and the Bible tells us, I believe it's John 18 again, that the whole Roman cohort assembled to mock him. So th- there are a lot of people involved in this. Acts chapter 10, the first Gentile convert to Christianity was a man named Cornelius. In Acts chapter 10, it says that Cornelius was a centurion in the Italian cohort. Okay, Paul, when he was sailing to Rome at the end of Acts, Acts chapter 27, it says that he was turned over to a centurion named Julius, and he was a centurion in the Augustan cohort. Now, this is just kind of a a side note of history, but Julius actually, um, for the first time, had oranges as part of his dessert, and that's where we get orange Julius dessert from. Not really. I'm just saying that to see if you're paying attention. So... (laughs) But you will remember Julius' name, won't you? So anyway, uh, so we, we had this, a cohort. Uh, so we had the legion of 6,000 men. It's divided up into 10 cohorts of 600 people. And then that cohort was divided into six centuries of 100 men. They called it a century. So a centurion was kind of a, a middle of, the, of, the, uh, of, of the, all the ranks. He was kind of in the middle, about a captain in our army. About the equivalent of that. So this centurion in the Roman army, the Bible says he had a slave. Now this is, it's not a servant like Mr. Belvedere. This is, this man's property is another person. And, and, and the Bible says he was highly regarded by him. Now we don't know why he was so highly regarded. Um, the, the historian Flavius Josephus tells us that at that time, centurions had slaves that oftentimes would not only train with them but sometimes fight with them fight alongside them so it's quite possible that this man had fought alongside this centurion we don't know that for sure but uh, but he may have been in some of the battles now if you look at verse 7 there's a different word that's used of this slave because verse 7 he doesn't call him it doesn't call him a slave or maybe may translate that that as a servant but in in the original language there's a different word that's used. The word that's used there means child or son. In other words, this man was so fond of this slave, he thought of the slave like family. And, and so he brought, and, and you'll notice that he, he, he didn't just leave the, the, the slave out in the slave quarters. He had him at home, right? He had him in the home because that's where the men returned in verse, tw- uh, verse 10, and they found him in good health. So this man was sick. Matthew 8, 6 records the same incident, says that, that he was paralyzed and afflicted, and he was fearfully tormented. And the word tormented could also mean, uh, also be rendered tortured. So this man is paralyzed, and his body is being racked with pain. And the centurion cares for this man. He, he has a, a deep compassion for him. And so he asks Jesus if he, will, if he will heal this man. Now, before we move on, I just want to bring this home to us. 
It may be that you have somebody in your life that maybe has a physical need. Maybe they have a financial need. Maybe they have a job situation. It is perfectly appropriate and good and right and even commanded to bring that matter to God. Now, we don't know God's will in in this matter, whatever the matter is. But sometimes I think that we have something come up in our lives or in the life of somebody that we care about. And we, we hesitate to even pray because we think we look at somebody else that has worse needs than what we have. And we think, well, I don't even want to ask God because he needs to, needs to help out those people. Or we think about all the stuff that's going on in maybe the Middle East or wherever it is. And we think God has so much stuff going on that I don't want to bother him with my problems. It's just a small thing. But Jesus shows here that we should that it is good and right to come to him in prayer. Now the Bible Bible tells us it even commands us that in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to let our requests be made known to God. So so when you have a need, maybe you have a, a loved one that has a need, a physical need or something like that, you need to go to God in prayer about that situation. So sometimes his answer is like with Paul. You remember the Bible says that Paul had a thorn in the flesh and, and he prayed three times that, that God would take it away and, and God's answer was my grace is sufficient. And that may be God's answer. His, his answer may be to intervene like Jesus did here. We don't know, but it is right and it is good to go to God in prayer. So the centurion hears about Jesus. He hears about the miraculous things he's done. And so he sends people, these Jewish elders, on his behalf to talk to Jesus. Now, likely, he probably sent him because he, being a Roman soldier, knows that Jesus, being a Jewish man, he may have thought he's not as likely to answer my request if I make it as if some Jewish people made it. Did you ever do this when you were a kid? You knew the parents had asked when you wanted something? Now, now maybe, I remember when I was young, I used to go up in church, and I'd want to go to my friend's house, or he wanted to come to my house, and so I would go and I'd ask I wouldn't ask dad first. I'd ask mom first. And sometimes she'd say, go ask your dad. A lot of times she'd say, go ask your dad. And he'd say, well, go ask your mom. I did. She said, come ask you. So, okay, 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 let's go. Maybe you did that. Maybe you had siblings and you knew if, if, if you wanted X done, you couldn't ask for X. You need to have your sibling who's in a, is more on mom or dad's good side at the moment, have them ask. And that's, that's kind of what this man seems to be doing. It's like he's saying, I don't think that Jesus will answer my request if I'm the one that makes it. But I'll have some Jewish elders go along. They're respected in the community. They're Jewish. He'll be more likely to answer their request. Now, the fact that they went speaks volumes of, about his relationship to him. Because at this point, what is the Roman and Jewish relationship to one another? Strained would be putting it mildly. Rome is the occupying army. And therefore, the Jews hated the Romans. And in turn, the Romans hated the Jews. So the fact that these Jewish elders thought so much of this centurion soldier that they went and they asked Jesus on his behalf, that says a lot. Now, I want you to notice, look, look carefully in uh, verse 4. Look at how these men, these Jewish elders, approach Jesus. Notice the way they address him. The Bible says that they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy. Why? 
Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, because he loves our nation. He loves the Israelites. And number two, out of that love, so he loves us so much, he financed the building of our synagogue. Now think about that. That is a financial sacrifice. Can you imagine loving a group of people so much that you personally finance the building of a house of worship for them? That's, that's some devotion. That's love. And it's quite possible that he, be, he was a God-fearer, a Gentile who began to worship the one true God. But anyway, they said, he's built this synagogue. Now I just want to put on the brakes for just a second. Where had Jesus taught in Capernaum? In the synagogue. Most likely, Jesus had stood in the synagogue that this man built, teaching, performing miracles. And this is an historical fact, and you can look it up. Don't do it now while we're in church but when you get home you can google Capernaum synagogue and archaeologists have actually found a synagogue in what they believe to be ancient Capernaum they date it to the fourth century so this that would be after what we're reading about but at in in their uh, excavations one of the common things they did back then is if there was a building and it was torn down for some reason it had blown down whatever it was they'd oftentimes build another one right on top of it same foundation and stuff like that. Under that 4th century synagogue, they found the floor of what they believe is another synagogue. They date to the 1st century. It's quite possible that they have found the synagogue that this centurion built that Jesus stood in and preached. And I think that's pretty cool. So anyway, that's, that's just kind of a historical side note. Um, so this man had built this synagogue. The Jewish leaders were thankful for that and what they do. They came to Jesus, and notice how they approached him. They approached him as an equal. They, they, they were respectful, but they didn't recognize his lordship. They didn't recognize his authority. What did they say to Jesus? You need to come and do what this man's asking. Why? For, because he is worthy. Jesus, he's done such good stuff. You owe it to him. To answer his prayer, to answer his supplication, to answer what he's wanting. Now, the question is, did he, did he really deserve for Jesus to do that? And the answer to that is no. He had done some great things. He had done some, some, some helpful things. But listen, he had not earned Jesus' activity in his life. The Bible says that Jesus started to go with him, but it wasn't because this man deserved it. It's not because he was worthy or had earned it, but it was solely based on his grace. Because he went because of who he was. So Jesus starts to head to, the, to this man's house, and look at the scriptures again. Evidently, Capernaum wasn't, you know, it's not like it was a six-month journey from one side of town to the other. Jesus starts to go to the man's, the centurion's house. Evidently, somebody that was there ran to tell the centurion the good news. The centurion finds out he would have been overjoyed, but he sends a group of friends to Jesus. And notice it wasn't to get him to hurry up. It was to say, don't come. Look again at verse 6. Notice how differently he approached Jesus through the second delegation. So they came and they just... Saw him, they addressed him as an equal. He's worthy for you to do this. Verse 6. Now Jesus started on his way with them 
And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Notice how differently he approaches Jesus. First, notice the address that he gives him. How, what, what is the word he uses of Jesus? Lord. Lord. Now, in that, in that context, the word translated as Lord here can be meant as sir, as a title of respect. But oftentimes, especially as it's used of Jesus, it's used as a title of authority, a title of, of deity even. And so he addresses him as Lord. And, and we, I, I think that that's the way he's addressing him because of what he says. And he says, you don't even need to come to my house. I recognize your, your lordship. I recognize your authority. Now think, he didn't have the full picture of faith that we have. And yet his faith probably puts each of ours to shame, doesn't it? Second, notice his estimation of himself. Look at verse 6. They said, come, you ought to do this for him. He deserves it because he's worthy. Verse 6, Lord, don't trouble yourself further, for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof or to even come and talk to you. I'm not worthy. So he's hoping for Christ's act, not based on his own works, but based on his grace, based on Jesus' goodness. And listen, the same is true of us today. God doesn't owe you and doesn't owe me anything. He doesn't owe us a good family. He doesn't owe us the, the opportunity to worship openly in America. He doesn't owe us with good health. He doesn't owe us salvation. Why? Because we, like this, like this centurion, we are not worthy. Apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we are enemies of God. The Bible says there's enmity. There's, we're, we're, we're at odds with, we're in rebellion against God. We suppress the truth that we have in unrighteousness. And if we have any hope of eternal life, it's solely based on the goodness and the graciousness of God. Not just in salvation, but, but, in, but in all of life. Sometimes we as Christians start to feel like we deserve it. Not just salvation, but we start to feel like, you know, God, this bad thing's happening in my life, and I don't understand because I do this, I, I serve at the church, I give money in the offering plate, Bible school rolls around, I'm, I'm good about working, I, I do this, I do that. When we have the can drive, which we will get those delivered, when, when we have the can drives, boy, I just I buy cans, I do all this stuff. You owe it to me then to give me these blessings. And the answer to that is, no, he doesn't. We haven't obligated God to do what we want. It's not a, it's not a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, or, or vice versa. God is a loving, gracious, heavenly Father that loves to bestow good gifts to His children and on His children. But it's not because we deserve it. It's in spite of the way that we live. In spite, it's because of who He is, not because of who we are, is how I should say it. Now notice His level of faith in verse 7. For this reason I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you here, here it is, but just say the word. Just say the word. What do we want? We want a sign. God, if, if you're going to do this, Lord, please have, let me hit green lights from here all the way to work. Then I'll know that you're answering my prayers. God, if, you, if you're going to answer this prayer, 
just, I just need you to, to have the preacher talk about this. I need to have this sign. I need to have this, that, or the other. And Jesus, he's not expected Jesus to, to give him a sign. He's not even expecting him to show up at his house. He just says, just say the word. You don't have to come put on production. You just give the command and I know it will be done. The last thing I want you to see is that Jesus, in verse 9, is wowed. Verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. He was amazed. He, he was astounded. This man's level of faith wowed Jesus. And he turns to, to the people in verse 9 that was following with him, many of which would have been Israelites. And what does he say? Even in all of Israel, I've not found a faith like this. The people who should have known better, that should have had the most faith. They, they'd seen God working throughout Israel's history. They'd been entrusted with the oracles of God. They should have been the ones to have the faith. And he says this Gentile that didn't have all that, he has faith, a, a stronger faith than what I found anywhere. And it probably insulted him, but they knew it was the truth. Now, we don't get any other interaction between Jesus and the centurion. We don't have a, a command that was given by Jesus. We don't have any more interaction at all. Just that the people went back and they found the, the, the servant healed. Now one of the things that my dear wife used to say a number of years ago, early on in our marriage, she's so sweet. One of the things she used to say to me was, you really surprised me. You really surprised me. Isn't that, that a sweet way of saying, you done hosed up? Now, she doesn't say it, it really anymore, and I think it's only because I must be getting better. And it's not because she's more direct 20 years in, but she has said, you surprised me. And I've noticed, as I thought about all these times that she said, and it's been several, with my track record, it was never, sweetie, you surprised me just how, how lucky I am. You surprised me with how, how good looking you are. You surprised me with how romantic you are. It's been none of that. It's been you surprised me, and now it's my spirit is grieved. Now she doesn't say that either, but that's the, that's the, that's the meaning behind it. And I say that because as I read about Jesus marveling, I don't think Jesus probably ever was looking at me and my faith and saying, Jeff, you surprised me. Your faith is so incredible. Your faith is so strong. It wowed me. Has he ever been like that about yours? Could Jesus look at your life? Could he look at your level of faith and turn to the angels in heaven and say, not even in all of America have I found a faith like that. Not even in all of Missouri have I found a faith like his. Not even in all of Lawrence County have I found a faith like hers. Can Jesus say that about you? My guess is probably not. And it may be that you're here and, and your faith is wavering. Maybe you've, you've had something on your heart. There's been some, something going on in, in a family member's life or a friend's life and you've prayed about it and you're like that, you're like that man in the Gospels that says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And maybe you've all but given up hope that God would hear and answer your prayers. 
Listen, friend. Don't stop praying. Don't give up. Keep knocking on heaven's door. Bombard heaven's throne of grace with your prayers. Don't count on him answering your prayers because you deserve him to do it, but because of his grace and mercy. He'll always answer your prayers according to his will, which is always going to be better than yours. And listen, this applies to salvation as well. It's not based on our works. It's not based on anything we can do. It's not that God will give us salvation because we've done great things, we build a house of worship or anything else. If we have salvation, it's based on who He is. Because the Bible says that we're all sinners. We've all violated God's commands. He says don't lie, don't cheat, don't, don't, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't do all these things. And each of us is a sinner. Each of us has violated those things. We've broken God's law. And that, that, that violation deserves wrath and punishment. And the good news of the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus bore the punishment, the wrath of God against sin. That whosoever would believe on him shall not perish. That they will not suffer the wrath of God, but they will have eternal life. And if you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, if you've never repented of your sin, do that today. Why don't you stand with me as musicians come? And as you stand, I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. There was nobody looking around. I just ask you. Has your faith wavered? Have you all but given up hope? Does your faith wow Jesus? This man recognized Jesus' lordship. He recognized his authority. He recognized his wonder-working power. And he didn't have nearly the light that we have. We have the whole of Scripture. We have... Jesus has gone to the cross. He's risen again. He's sent to the Father's right hand. We have all that. How much more should our faith be strong? And I want to encourage you to, to, to make a willful choice to believe God. Maybe you've been kind of puzzled because You've looked at your life and you try to do the right things and things are still not happening. Listen, even when we've had bad days and some, some of us have terrible things happen to us, even that's better than we deserve. Are you counting on your good works to get you right with God? to get you to heaven? You think you can walk up to, to, to God whenever you stand before Him at the end of your life and say, I'm worthy? Because the answer is, you're not worthy.
that God offers salvation because of who He is, not because of who we are. Just like a physical gift, you have to reach out and take hold of that, but you do it with the hand of faith. Repent and believe the gospel. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're thankful for your graciousness. We thank you that even when we don't deserve your goodness to us, even when we're your enemies, when we're running from you and we're suppressing the truth that you've given us, we're in open rebellion against you. Thank you that you still offer salvation. And Lord, we know that we never know how long that invitation will be extended, but we know the fact that it is, is more than we deserve. And God, if there's somebody who's hearing me today that's never accepted Christ as their Savior, I pray that they would come today. And God, for those of us maybe who have had some extended time of, of difficulty, some extended time where you've not answered our prayers the way that we wanted you to or think that you should. God, I pray that you'd help us to not lose faith, but to keep praying, to be faithful in prayer. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.